I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John uh, chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses 19 down to verse 23 this morning. I confess as I work through them, it says, I can see why some pastors have divided this up into multiple sermons. We will uh, do our best to uh, cover the verses and get into some uh, details of Jesus' teaching in the time that we have together this morning. So John uh, chapter 20 at verse 19, and before we read it, let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, taking a look at the resurrection ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ is a delight to our hearts to see how he brings comfort and mission and evidence for the doubting. And we need the exact same things as your disciples did down to this very day. And so we pray that you would minister to each of our hearts. We might not have any idea how we even need to be ministered to right now, but you do. And so we pray that you'll pour out your Holy Spirit richly, change us, encourage us, make us more like your son. All this we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, John uh, chapter 20 at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. This beloved congregation of hope and everyone listening uh, this morning, we're looking at uh, what some have termed John's version of the Great Commission, where Jesus gives uh, his church in particular as a whole uh, the mission that they are called to uh, be on. And it, as we look over the land, I think in here in America or even in foreign countries, it's very easy in here at Hope too for us to get off mission, off point, to forget why indeed the church is in the world, why the Lord has left us here with the Holy Spirit empowering us, what it is, what it is that he would have us to do. Now, for some, the mission of the church is a mission of politics and policy, that the greatest work the church can do is to infiltrate government, to proclaim politics, to tell people how they're supposed to vote. And uh, the greatest influence we can have upon the world is in positions of government by either being in them, uh, which again, if we're called to do that, by all means, we should go do it and do it well as a believer, or by telling people how they should rule. For some, the mission of the church is escapism. The best thing the church can do is uh, create a sort of safe haven in this world, a separate community away from everybody else, sort of Amish-like, where we can have our little holy huddle, we can circle the wagons, and we can all hunker down until we die or Jesus comes again. For some, the mission of the church, think crusades, think inquisition, uh, a mission, it's a mission of swords and gunpowder, that the way we advance the gospel, the way the church thrives is by convert or die, so to speak, by getting lands through sheer force, and by forcing people to say that they are believers. 
And as we walk through this passage, I trust we're going to see that the mission of the church is indeed quite different than these things. And I want us to notice that Jesus sends his church on a mission. I want us to notice three things underneath that theme. Peace and joy for the mission that we're provided. The lifestyle of the mission. What, what does the mission entail? How are we supposed to be involved in this? And then finally, the power of the mission. Where does the power come from and what is indeed the power that Jesus has invested the church with in order to accomplish the mission. So first of all, I want us to notice the peace and the joy which we have available for the mission and which are actually required to sort of fuel the mission. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So before this even starts, before Jesus comes through this locked door with his resurrection body, we find the disciples in a place of fear. Now, if Jesus doesn't come and minister to them and the Holy Spirit doesn't come and Pentecost doesn't happen, then Christianity just dies. There is nothing that is going to materialize or come from these scaredy cats. And you and I would be no different sitting up here in this locked room for fear of the Jews. Why would they be afraid of the Jews? Well, if you kill the leader, it's not too much of a stretch to say that after the leader's dead, now you go after the closest followers. And so they were afraid uh, for what life on the outside of this room would look like. They were afraid maybe for their own lives. Uh, they were just afraid in general, but afraid on account of Jesus' crucifixion. And that's where we begin. And when Jesus comes in, he administers to them peace. Peace be with you. Now, in one sense, peace is just a standard way that Jews would greet uh, one another. Nothing more than simply, hi, how are you doing, we might say in America here. And I remember in seminary, we were actually taught some Hebrew greetings that we jokingly would offer each other down the hallways. I'm sure this happens in tons of seminaries. We'd say, uh, a shalom aleichem, peace be upon you, or Mashalom laka, how is your peace? And we'd say tov, Hebrew for good, or tov ma'od, very good is our peace. And we went into Jewish synagogues, we would actually try these greetings and we got some uh, standard responses back. So when Jesus comes in and says, hey, peace be with you, uh, that is uh, just a way to greet people in one sense. In another sense, Jesus promised peace. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. And here he's actually uh, fulfilling that. John 16, these things I have spoken to you that in me you might have peace. Now they're afraid, but he's coming to minister peace to them. Peace is also the banner under which God's people live. And it's the theme that begins a lot of New Testament letters. Colossians 1, 1, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Philippians 1-2, same language. Ephesians 1-2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We begin, and worship services all over the world begin with this greeting from the Lord. Peace, a reminder to each of us that indeed God and Christ has extended to us grace and peace. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means two things, and I think particularly one that I would like to highlight. It means we have peace with God. 
And that's the one I'd like to highlight. It can also mean the peace of God, which passes all understanding, think Philippians 4, which guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. But I think what Jesus is particularly ministering to his people is peace with God. And he's assuring them that indeed they have peace with Jesus and with God. Now remember, the last time Jesus saw the disciples, what did this look like? They had all fled. Peter was in the work of denying Jesus. And there weren't many who were standing boldly for Christ, standing underneath the cross, proclaiming just how great he is and that he came to do this and that he'd be resurrected on the third day. So we might have expected Jesus to show up in this room and say, you guys are like the most miserable disciples in the world. No other disciples are this poor. Disciples of other false religions, they are so sold out for their leader. What are you all thinking? I want to get new disciples or something else to that effect. But instead, Jesus comes to his failures as followers. The people who've seen his miracles, heard his teaching for three years, been eyewitnesses of these things, were told he would be crucified and resurrected. He comes to those same people who have failed him miserably. And he begins with peace to you. Peace. This is incredible, beloved. This is, this is a sure testament that our God is a God of great grace, that he can treat his failures as disciples with this kind of peace. Think Romans 5.1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been justified by faith, justified by God's grace, and now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is testifying to his disciples and to us as a church that indeed through him, we have peace with God. There is peace with God. The war's over. The battle's over. Jesus fought in our place. He has conquered sin. And now God is for us rather than against us. There is no more war between a believer and God, period. And Jesus starts by testifying to that reality with his disciples. And then there's the peace of God. Again, Philippians 4, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And there could be that notion here as well. I'm not trying to discount that. That Jesus is saying, look, there is peace between you and me. You have failed, but your sins are forgiven. I have forgiven you. I've paid for your sin. But there's also, I want you to understand the peace of God, a clear conscience, knowing that God is for me rather than against me. And then there's joy as well. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So he's giving them evidence that indeed this is Jesus Christ who was crucified and resurrected. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So they all of a sudden now fear is replaced with gladness. So he communicates to them peace, not anger, not frustration, not condemnation. And then he shows them evidence that indeed I'm the same Lord that you've been following for three years now in my public ministry, but now I'm resurrected after crucifixion. And they are just glad. They have joy. They're excited about this. John Stott, in sort of gathering all this together, said this, the church's very first need before it can begin to engage in evangelism or the mission of the church, which we'll look at in just a minute, is an experience and an assurance of Christ's peace. Peace of conscience through his death that banishes sin. Peace of mind through his resurrection that banishes doubt. Once we are glad that we have seen the Lord and once we have clearly recognized him as our crucified and risen Savior, then nothing and no one will be able to silence us. 
If we as a church are to be faithful in God's mission, we need to be assured that indeed between us and God, there is peace through Jesus Christ. That just by our faith, by our believing in Jesus, God is not against us. He is for us. We need to be convinced of that, beloved. Or it's going to be very difficult to go out into the world and tell people about how their sins might be forgiven when we're not even sure ours are through Christ. So necessary. And also, we need to be sure that indeed Jesus is risen from the dead. Not just, oh yeah, some people saw him, or maybe he came out of the grave, or maybe there'll be a resurrection in general, but that the Jesus Christ who was crucified actually rose from the dead. We need to be assured of that, and it needs to change our hearts, and we need to be glad that that's the case. Or it's going to be very hard to go out into the world and communicate how people's sins can be forgiven when we might actually be believing in a dead Christ who didn't really accomplish anything. Beloved, Jesus Christ has risen. He has appeared. He reigns on high. He's ascended. He's reigning right now. We need to be convinced of these things and glad that's the case before we'll be able to be faithful in participating in God's mission. Well, what's the mission itself or the lifestyle of the mission? Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And I want to highlight that language, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus is using his own mission, his own sentness from the Father as a sort of pattern by which we are sent as well. Now, there's going to be differences here because we're not God, obviously. The church is not God. Jesus is God in the flesh. But there's a pattern here that Jesus establishes, which is useful for us as believers in the church, useful for the church as a whole to understand how is the church sent out into the world? How is the church as an organization supposed to function? Why do we exist? And so it'll help us as we understand this mission to figure out what our roles in that mission look like. Not each of, each of us having probably a bit of a different role, but still in the same mission. So how does the Father send Jesus? He sends him under authority. He sends him into the world of sinners and he sends them on a mission of rejection. So I want us to understand that as we walk through here. So first, Jesus being sent, his mission had to do with being under authority. John 4, 34, my food is to do, the will, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5, 30, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus' mission involves submitting to his father's will. He did not come down here into this world to do as he pleased, to have his best life now, to live one big, long 33-year party. Jesus came into this world on a mission, and his mission was what? I do everything, nothing more, nothing less than what my Father has given me to do. If there's one thing that John, over against any of the other gospel writers, makes crystal clear, it's that, that Jesus came to do his Father's will. Now, I need this as much as anybody here, I'm guessing, the reminder that indeed we are sent in the same way. We are under authority as a church. Every believer all over the world, every church all over the world is under authority. We don't get to live our best life in the here and now, however we please, however we see fit. We don't get to live a 70 or 80 year party. 
We're under authority. We've been bought with a price. We're called to glorify God with our bodies. Everything that we do think and say down to our motives is actually under the authority of Christ. And the church is under Christ's authority to do nothing more and nothing less than the mission that he has given us to be on. And so we can ask ourselves as you know, one congregation among hundreds of thousands or millions all over the world, and we can ask ourselves individually too as members of the church, indeed, are we submitting to the mission of Christ? Are we of the understanding that we are not here to do whatever we feel like or whatever we would enjoy doing. We're not even here to do whatever we think might be best use of our lives and our own understanding. We're here under the authority of Christ to do his bidding. So that number one, even as Jesus has been sent, he sends us. As he's been sent by the Father, so he sends us out. And we are a people under authority. The other thing that John makes clear is that Jesus' mission as he was sent is that it was an incarnation into a world of sinners. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. So Jesus' mission given him by the Father was not to sit in heaven and sort of orchestrate redemption, but to actually come down and incarnate into this world so that we could see him, the apostles could be eyewitnesses of him, and so that he could associate indeed with the people in the world who need to be rescued. Now, we all know what a rescue mission is about, right? You can't rescue somebody remotely. If you're going to rescue somebody who's drowning, you're going to be the one to rescue. You actually have to either float above the water in a helicopter and pull them out, or you have to get wet yourself and, and pull them out. If you're going to rescue somebody in a burning building, you can't rescue them by yelling to them, hey, wake up breathe the smoke out of your lungs, stand up and walk out. And you have to go in them and in there and pick them up and take them out. You have to incarnate into the world of the one who needs to be rescued. Jesus Christ has done that, beloved. He has come down into this world to look us face to face and to go all the way to the cross at the hands of people like you and me who hate God by nature and say, we don't want any of this. That is how Jesus came. It's how he was sent. And so if we're to be on this exact same mission as a church, then ours is going to be a mission where we incarnate and we live in the world, which is composed of people who don't know the Lord, sinners who are at present outside of Christ, even as we seek to proclaim the gospel to them. If we want to be about the mission of Jesus Christ, we have to be personally involved with the people who need to be rescued. Stephen Cole uh, pastor wrote in his sermon on this passage uh, a story about Gib Martin. He was an atheist who came to Christ by means of a man named Charlie. Gib eventually uh, became a pastor himself. Charlie was formerly an alcoholic for years. Uh, he, after coming to Christ and sobering up, he had a heart for people who were uh, addicted to alcohol and who were stuck in that rut. And so every day after work, he actually went to the bar to... Uh, meet these people, meet people who didn't know Christ and, and were, uh, whose life was just living in a bar after work until you go to bed. So he would drink coffee and share his faith. And uh, during his time there, uh, he met Gib, and that's how Gib came to faith. 
through Charlie, this former alcoholic who had a real heart for people who were just like him. And Stephen Cole writes, but the sad part of the story is that none of the local churches would allow Charlie to associate with them because he went to the bar every day. Even though he wasn't getting drunk, he wasn't even having a beer. They didn't like what he was doing. Even the church where Charlie directed Gibb to go after his conversion wouldn't allow Charlie to join. Now, some churches em embrace and reach out to sinners very well. Others are indifferent. Some are just horrible at it. And they prefer that the world and everyone in it just kind of go to hell in a handbasket. We don't really care. We're saved. We're fine. We get eternal life. The rest of the world can just perish. It's kind of a burden too big for us. We don't really care. If we're to accept the mission of Jesus Christ that he was sent on and we're part of this mission, Jesus is the authority in the mission who's sending his church on that, it's going to involve incarnating into a world that will probably for a lot of us make us very uncomfortable. It might be very difficult. It'll certainly be life-changing. And if our attitude is like some churches is and some believers, well, these people are too messy. Let me ask you this question. I was asking myself this too. What would I look like? What would my life look like if I was still totally depraved in Adam, not in Christ, and I didn't know the Lord at all? What things would I be addicted to uh, unrepentantly? What form would my hatred of God and hatred of other people take? Just how bad would my life look? It wouldn't be pretty. Beloved, what do we think the lives of people who don't know the Lord are going to look like? It's not going to be pretty. They don't look pretty. In fact, the only reason our lives look at all like they're being conformed to the image of Christ is just the sheer grace of God working in each of us, which is something to be incredibly thankful for. We can rightly expect that the lives of those whom we reach out to won't be pretty, but we will be personally involved in the mess if we're going to be part of this mission Jesus has sent us on. You know, it's interesting, Matthew eleven nineteen. 19, Jesus is called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And I know we like to focus on tax collectors and sinners, but catch, this is his reputation. He was their friend. He hung out with them so much that they called him, this, this guy is a friend of them. He spends time with them. He likes them in the sense that look at how he's spending his time. That's, that's the mission Jesus is on. He had the reputation of, yeah, he really has a friend. He really has a heart, and he's really a friend of those who are lost. And 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. There were some of the Corinthian church say, oh, we need to not associate with all these horribly sinful people. Then I guess we just have to create a little bit of a, a club that's totally separate from the world. And Paul saying, no, 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 I'm telling you not to associate with those who say I'm a believer, but their lives are just a train wreck, who are under church discipline, etc." But as far as associating with people in the world who are sexually immoral and the swindlers and the greedy, of course you have to associate with them. You'd have to leave the world if you're going to try and not do that because they're everywhere. So, beloved, I don't know what your attitude is toward the mission of the church, Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost. The church is part of that mission. We have this great mission Jesus has sent us. I don't know what your attitude is toward that in general.
but it's going to involve getting our hands dirty as a congregation. It's going to involve you and me individually figuring out what our roles in that look like and how it is that we're going to be part of this mission of the church to see people come to Christ who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, your ministry might not be in a bar or at a worship service of the devil or at the Super Bowl, right? I knew a lot of people who go to football games at Missouri State and hand out tracts. Great ministry. It's incredible. Maybe you say, that's not my ministry. Yeah, but you've, you've got a ministry. I've got one. You've got a role in this, beloved. And it's a big role. We each play a part. All of us are to be useful in this. And then the last thing I want us to notice about the mission that Jesus came to do and how it involves us is John 1.11 and involves rejection and suffering. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. In fact, they tried to stone him, kill him. Eventually they crucified him. The mission God sent Jesus on was a mission of rejection and suffering of pain. And if you look at the ministry of the apostles, you'll discover the same. Beaten, stoned, threatened, jailed, put in prison, they were hated. That was the ministry of the apostles. That's been the ministry of the church ever since the very beginning. The mission of the church, the mission the church has been sent on is a difficult mission. Jesus is not looking for people who are willing to succeed for him so much as he is looking for people who are willing to suffer for him, to die for him. That's what Jesus is looking for. People who are willing to say, I do what you ask me to do. Who are willing to say, I'll pick up my cross. I will deny myself. I will die to self. And I will follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we can see, the Christian life is not a life for the faint-hearted. It's a life where we've counted the cost of following Jesus. It's a life where we say, actually, to live is to die. To die is to live. To follow Jesus and be obedient in this mission and enter into eternal life afterwards. That's true joy. That's where the party is. That's where fun and happiness and blessedness is. True happiness and blessedness. That's where it is. It's to obey Jesus no matter the cost that he asks us to undergo and to get heaven to come that'll last forever in the life after. So let me ask you this, beloved, how committed are you to the mission? Do you believe that you are part of the mission? Do I believe it? Do we believe this is what the church exists for? This incredible work of going into the world where people don't know the Lord and telling them about the gospel and seeing them come to faith. And whether or not they do come to faith, we just go and we tell or we serve and we love and we figure out what does it look like for me to be part of the church's mission in the world. Now, I want to conclude with verses 22 and 23, the power of the mission. So when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, there were two aspects of power. I could have divided this up better that I want us to look at. The first aspect is the Holy Spirit. So this is a mission of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people have said that Jesus breathing on them and saying, receive the Holy Spirit is sort of a symbolic, almost foreshadowing of Pentecost to come. That will happen very shortly here. And indeed, you could argue that that is the case. D.A. Carson of others, well-respected commentators have said that. But I think there's more to this 
as well. I think the Lord here is supplying the Holy Spirit to his disciples so that they will be strengthened to understand his death and resurrection and also receive his teaching that he gives them between now and his ascension. Remember, so far, none of the disciples have really had any notion of Jesus' teaching. It's not really clicked. He's been teaching them over and over and over again. I've got to be crucified, delivered up, and resurrected on the third day. It's not clicked yet. What do they need to get this? The Holy Spirit. What is it that Jesus did with his disciples? Where did all the writing come from? In Ephesians, Galatians, 1 Peter, 1 John. Where did they get all this information or a lot of it? In Jesus' seminary courses between resurrection and ascension, a lot of it. And obviously the Holy Spirit's moving them to write. So beloved, in order for them to piece all this together, what do they need? They need the Holy Spirit to be able to understand Jesus' teaching. And I think as well that Jesus is teaching that the mission of the Holy Spirit is also Jesus' mission. He's saying, look, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. What's he communicating to them? I'm the one who sends the Spirit. The Spirit comes from me. Me and the Holy Spirit are working together. Now that's going to be crucial for the church. So when Pentecost hits, and they say, whoa, this is something new. No, this is the extended ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said this would happen. The Spirit is coming from Jesus who has sent him. So the mission that the church is sent on is the mission of Jesus, which is empowered by the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sends. And one more thing I think that is going on here. I think Jesus is teaching us in no uncertain terms that the Holy Spirit is vital to our mission, the church's mission, vital, absolutely crucial. If the Holy Spirit does not work, then the church's mission will fail every single time. No question about it. Without the third person of the Trinity, all of Jesus' saving, redemptive work that he has done will profit not one single soul if the Holy Spirit does not powerfully work. Without the Holy Spirit, the church is powerless indeed. So I want to make that first point about the power of the mission. We need the Holy Spirit. Remember Spurgeon, when he would walk up to the pulpit and preach, he was reported to have said sometimes at every step, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. What's he doing? He preached the gospel. What does he understand? The Holy Spirit doesn't take these feeble words and pin men's hearts with them and change them. It's going to be profitless for me to even preach. But the second thing that I want us to notice is that the power of the church is a spiritual power that has to do with forgiveness of sins. That's where Jesus speaks in verse 23, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So the church is not in the business of declaring what political system the country we live in should operate by. That's not like, oh yeah, go into the world and change politics. No, the church is not in the business of escapism. Hey, you better go create a, a safe place for everybody to live where they can be away from the world. That's not the mission Jesus sent us on, quite the opposite. The church is not in the business of, here's, here's another one, telling parents how they ought to educate their kids. Hey, you have to educate, homeschool, Christian school, God has sent them to the public school and evangelize. That's not the business of churches and parents are called to teach their children, to train them, discipline them, instruct them. The church is an aid, an assist to teach the word of God. But beloved, that's not the church's mission to tell parents, oh, you must educate your kids this way. What is the business of the church? Telling people how sins can be forgiven. 
That's the mission that Jesus sends the disciples on, and by extension, us as the church. The church is in the business of declaring how sins are and are not forgiven, where forgiveness can be found. This is incredibly important, beloved. Every other mission and goal is way too low. The mission that the church has is of eternal consequence. It's a massive mission. It's the most important mission in all the world. Think of all the military missions. You can think of everything that is incredible when people go do other certain kinds of missions. Imagine being part of a mission that has eternal consequences for people. Imagine being part of that on that team. That's the church. That's the mission we're part of. There is no more important mission in all the world, politically, militarily, than the mission that the church has in this world. No mission anywhere has this much at stake in it, and you and I get to be part of this mission team because we're part of God's people, the church. Now, I, I need to sort of do a side note here because the Roman Catholic Church has a teaching on this verse, which uh, I guess if you take it literalistically, and this was the only verse in the Bible, you could argue is actually a sound exegetical teaching. But I wanna just unfold it and then sort of uh, delineate how we as Protestants view this Differently, the Roman Catholic Church has a sacrament called penance. And again, if you look at this verse and read it literalistically, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. It almost sounds like, oh, we decide who's forgiven and God honors that. That we're the ones who lead and we're the ones who make the decision and that God has invested in the church uh, the power to forgive sins and declare that people are forgiven. So people in the church can do that, pastors, priests, whatever, and that heaven honors that. That is on the surface how it sounds. And the Roman Catholic Church has developed a doctrine called penance, which is largely based on this passage from John chapter 20. In this sacrament, a person confesses their sins. The priest gives them instructions on what they can do to sort of make restitution for their sins. Oftentimes it's like prayers to God and other things. And then the priest declares the following, here it is. God, the Father of mercies, through the death and resurrection of his Son, has reconciled the world to himself and sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sin through the ministry of the church. May God give you pardon and peace, and I absolve you from your sins. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. That's what the priest declares, I absolve you. And that's where we as Protestants, that language, I absolve you as if another human being could say, I forgive your sins. And one Catholic teacher wrote, commenting on this, the priest has the power to confer or convey the forgiveness of God, not by his own power, but by the power that Christ conferred on his apostles that day recorded for us in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. So the Roman Catholic Church believes that Jesus gave the apostles authority to forgive sins and that this authority is passed on in the church through apostolic succession, so that a priest in the Roman Catholic Church has the authority to declare someone's sins are indeed forgiven. That is the Roman Catholic Church take, very summary form, in general, um, on this verse. Now, as Protestants, we have a different uh, view of this verse since the days of John Calvin. We do not believe a priest or a mere human being has the authority to declare someone else's sins forgiven. We believe that God alone has the authority to forgive sins. Psalm 32.5, 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's God forgiving. Isaiah 43, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. That's God forgiving. And then maybe a very familiar passage to us, Mark 2, Jesus said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus is God. As God, he can forgive sins. They thought he was a mere man. That was the quibble they had with him. We know Jesus is God, so it makes perfect sense that Jesus could say, your sins are forgiven. But what the scribes, what the Pharisees understood was this, no one has authority to forgive sins but God alone. They were right on that point. They got that from the Old Testament. They were exactly right. And even as the apostles went out preaching, they understood. They did not say, I forgive your sins, or I declare that your sins are forgiven. In fact, this is Peter's language from Acts 10, 43. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He's telling them where forgiveness can be found. But Peter's not saying, oh, I absolve you. I forgive you for your sins against God. And if the apostles were supposed to do that, they failed miserably. Because you won't find the apostles going out saying, oh, I absolve you from your sins. I forgive you for your sins against God. Again, in their preaching, they're showing people where forgiveness can be found. So what do we do with this passage? We say this, as you compare verse 23 of John chapter 20 with other parts of scripture, that the church has authority to declare that all who believe in Jesus Christ are forgiven of their sins and that all who do not believe in Jesus are still in their sins and not forgiven. And if we compare this verse with the rest of the Bible, we discover that the verse cannot mean the apostles or the church have authority to say someone's sins are indeed forgiven. Rather, we discover that this verse teaches us that the message of forgiveness through Jesus comes with the authority of heaven, so that when, the, when Jesus Christ is embraced through faith, God is in full accord with the forgiveness. In other words, when the church declares that those who believe in Jesus Christ are forgiven of their sins, those who believe in Jesus are indeed forgiven. God honors the message of the gospel. It's his gospel. And when the church proclaims the message, if you don't believe in Jesus, your sins are not forgiven. Again, God's gospel message. God honors his own message. And the church is the one which goes around and proclaims that if you believe in his son, you're forgiven if you don't believe in his son, you are not forgiven. And indeed, where the church is faithful to that message, just that gospel, it is indeed the case that if you believe, you're forgiven. If you don't believe, you're not. So what is the mission of the church that we're sent on? What's the power of it? What, what does the church have when we go out into the world? We have a message which talks about where sins can be forgiven. That is the mission we're on, one of the one of the aspects of it, right? We go to Matthew 28, look at the Great Commission too. So when we go out into the world, indeed, we may be involved in politics and policy. We may be involved in our local, county, state, federal government. 
by all means, go do it well as a Christian. Serve the Lord mightily. But let's just keep in mind that the biggest need for human beings isn't to live under really great laws in this world and the here and now. Greatest need that Jesus sent the church and the world for and left the church and the world for is to point people to him so their sins can be forgiven. And they don't have to pay for them forever in hell. That's the biggest need of every human being, beloved. And we as a church should just always keep that continually before us. It's a sobering message, isn't it? It's a sobering reality. You don't believe in Jesus. You're, you're not forgiven. You're still in your sins. There's not going to be like a God on the last day saying, oops, uh, that was what I gave you when Jesus was there, but I actually changed my mind. And everybody who doesn't believe in me, you're fine too. You'll be in heaven. No, what Jesus is saying in verse 23 is, look, as when you go out as a church and you proclaim this message, that's a message from God. It's just the truth. So everybody who doesn't embrace Jesus, they are still in their sins. And on the last day, that is going to be revealed to be the case to the entire world. Yes, the message I gave to my church, it's still true. You believe in Jesus, you're forgiven. You don't believe in him, you're not forgiven. And now you'll have to pay unto eternity. So beloved, this is quite an impressive thing that God has given people like you and me as part of the church to, to be involved in this incredible work of proclaiming the gospel. And so let me ask you this, as I ask myself this, are we at Hope Church part of this mission? Is that our heartbeat? Do we go out into the world? Do we view our existence as a church? Do we view it as, hey, we have a mission from God and we've got to get people's sins straightened out or help them straighten it out and figure out, do you believe in Jesus or not? Do you trust in him for forgiveness or you trust him in someone or something else? If you trust in him, you're forgiven. If you trust in him, your sins are forgiven. God forgives you if you believe in Jesus. But if you don't, don't let there be any misunderstanding. Your sins are not forgiven. And you are not made right with God. And God is not your friend. And he is not your father. And you are not a child of his who's going to enjoy eternal life when this world is over. So if you want eternal life, you have to believe in Jesus. Are we a church that is about that? And then let me ask this sort of personally. Are we involved in this mission of the church? Not just talking only here at Hope, right, as our congregation. That might be the primary way this works itself out. But are we personally involved in this mission? Have we figured out what we have time for, right? It's a matter of wisdom. What our role in this mission will be. Have we thought and prayed about this? Lord, how would you use me in this mission? I'm one member among so many, right? One set of gifts. I've got constraints. How is it that you would use me in this incredible mission of going into the world to tell people where forgiveness can be found? Let's pray.